We're in John chapter 4 today, and here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. That is what we are here to do. And so whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time, whether you're newer to Jesus, or maybe you're not even sure who Jesus is, and you're here just checking things out, all of that is great. We're just here to help you take your next steps, whatever those next steps are. Uh, we want to be moving forward in our spiritual journey, moving forward in our walk with Jesus. And so we focus on that primarily in three ways. We want to be taking our next steps upward and and inward and outward. So when we talk about upward, we want to be taking our next steps in our relationship with him, in our understanding of him, in our knowledge of him. We want to be growing in our connection and our communion with him. So that's the upward piece. We want to be taking our next steps inward, and inwardly is where God is doing his work in us, where we are being changed, because anyone who walks with Jesus will be changed. And so as we focus on our inward next steps, we're focusing on God doing his work to transform us, to make us more like Jesus, and then we want to take our next steps outwardly, and that's how are we living this out? How are we loving other people? How are we engaging with the world around us? Uh, so that we want to be taking our next steps outward as well. We see all three of these things as interconnected. They're not separate on their own, and they're all crucial to the spiritual journey. And so we've been in a series the last number of weeks that we've just simply called Jesus and the Sinners. And we're looking at different stories in the Gospels where Jesus meets people in their sin, because we know and understand, of course, that everybody has sinned, and that uh, once we grab onto Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and yet we know we're not perfect yet, and so we're wanting to look at how does Jesus engage with sinners in the Bible, and what does that teach us about Jesus, and what does that teach us about our sin, and, and how we are grappling with and moving through our sin, and what does that teach us about how we are treating other people in their sin, and how can we imitate Jesus in those ways, and so there's five key premises that we uh, jumped into in week one that I keep coming back to that are guiding us as we look at how Jesus engages with sinners, so number one, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. If anyone's going to call themselves a Christ follower, scripture says, then they actually have to follow Christ. They actually have to walk in his ways and walk in his teaching and walk in his example. 1 John 2, 6 tells us that. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, it's important to us then what does Jesus do? What does he teach? And how do we imitate him? How do we follow his ways? We've seen that Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. That there are people around him, the Pharisees in particular, who didn't like the fact that Jesus was having a meal with sinners. He didn't like the fact that Jesus was not uh, hitting sin as hard as they thought that he should. They thought he was a little soft on sin. They thought he was a little friendly with sinners in a way that they didn't like. Now, we don't believe he was any of those things because he couldn't be, and yet that was the perception, and that perception actually didn't seem to bother him a whole lot. He was actually at peace with that, or so it seems. That being said, Jesus calls sin what it is, and he calls us away from it. So Jesus is not actually soft on sin. Jesus never sins. Jesus never endorses sin. Jesus will call sin what it is, and he'll call us away from it. We believe that God's way is just a better way, that holiness is just better than sin, that there's reasons why God says, don't do these certain things. And it's not because he's mean or he's trying to limit us. It's because these things are not good. They're not healthy. They're not safe. And so God says, these things I don't want you to do. Find a purer way. Find a better way. And so Jesus calls us to follow after the pure way of Christ. 
Christ. Jesus is both holy and merciful. Uh, and, and it's easy to kind of lean one way or the other. I think naturally, maybe we all lean a bit one way or the other. We like the holiness of God or we like the mercy of God. But Jesus doesn't compromise either and somehow manages to hold both of those things together. He is fully holy. He is fully pure. He is fully separate from sin and yet also is the most loving being that has ever walked on this earth. He is also the most merciful and compassionate being that has ever walked this earth, and he managed to hold all of that together. And then lastly, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. Doesn't mean he wants them to stay where they are, but he meets them where they're at. He starts a conversation with them wherever they're at. He doesn't make them jump through 47 hoops to clean themselves up before he'll engage with them. He meets them right where they are, and then the conversation goes from there. So as we jump into the text today, in John chapter 4, when Jesus comes to the earth, one of the ways he relates himself to us is he calls himself a shepherd. And not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd. He says, I am a good shepherd. A good shepherd lays their own life down for the sheep. And Jesus, of course, didn't just kind of make that up in the New Testament. That's a picture that God has used in the Old Testament as well to talk about himself. Most famously, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And so when Jesus comes to earth, he's saying the shepherd that we spoke of in Psalm 23 is now here. That shepherd is actually here. And I remember watching a shepherd being interviewed once in a church service many, many years ago. And so this was a real-life shepherd and just talking about some of the elements of being a shepherd and then what's the implication as God refers to himself that way. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me all these years later and certainly has informed me as I have been a a professional shepherd of a church uh, over my adult life is that he said the shepherd by nature has to be gentle because if the shepherd comes in really aggressive or really intense or really loud, the sheep will scatter. They'll, they'll be spooked. And so even though the shepherd knows without a doubt, I got to get you guys from here over here, they will take their time. It'll be slow. It'll be gentle. Uh, they approach the sheep kind of where they're at, and, and they understand that if we're going to get the sheep to go where we need them to go, that I'm going to actually have to gently guide them there and not just come and, and force them. I said, in an emergency, you can come in and you can crack them with a stick and you can get them to go there. But their default position as shepherds is to be gentle, and we're going to lead them there gently. When Jesus came to the earth, he said, hey, I am gentle and I am meek. Um, He came in that gentleness, and that doesn't mean he doesn't have hard things to say, and it doesn't mean he doesn't get angry sometimes, but as he is engaging with people, and we've seen it even in the weeks we've looked at so far, there is a gentleness to it, where he is meeting people where they're at, he is speaking the truth boldly, to be certain, but his demeanor is very different than someone just coming in and cracking the whip and saying, change your behavior and do it this way. So let's take a look at our text. We're in John chapter 4, we're going to read a lot of it, Um, we're not going to dig deep into all of it, but it's a good story from John 4. We'll start in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So there is a lot going on in this story. And just as we get ready to jump in, one more verse that will help guide us. We've looked at the last few weeks as well. John 1.14, talking about Jesus, says, We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus was equally full of grace and equally full of truth. My theory is that most of us lean a bit one way or the other. We can be really, really gracious, and sometimes we lay the truth aside. Or we can be very, very truthful, and sometimes we lay God's grace aside. And Jesus manages to do both together. Again, he holds these things together. And so Jesus does not give us the ability to say, well, sin doesn't matter because God loves us so much and he's so gracious, because that would be laying aside truth, that sin is real and we are to turn away from it. But likewise, Jesus doesn't let 
let us only focus on sin and condemn people in their sin and cast people into hell because of their sin, because to do that would be to lay aside the grace of God. So Jesus manages to hold these things together, including in the story that we're looking at today. So as the story unfolds, we're not going to hit every verse. We're going to skip some sections just because there's a lot there. Uh, But jumping into verse 4 and 6. So Jesus uh, was in the south of Israel. There's baptisms going on. It's starting to become controversial. So he decides, I'm going to head home to Galilee up in the north. But to do that, he has to pass through Samaria. So he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And so just a little snapshot on the Samaritans. And so Israel, as they uh, came out of Egypt, as they wandered through the wilderness, as they came into the promised land, they are united as one country. There is one nation of Israel, and the kings of Israel sit on the throne there. After King Solomon dies, civil war breaks out over who is going to run the country now. King David had run the country well before that. His son Solomon had led the country and unified the country, but after Solomon dies, civil war breaks out, and Israel actually splits into two countries. So the northern part that splits off keeps the name the kingdom of Israel. The southern part takes on the name the kingdom of Judah, and the southern part, where, uh, called Judah, uh, where Jerusalem is, keeps Jerusalem as its capital, and that's where the temple of the Lord is. That's where worship is happening, and so that's the southern nation of Judah. The northern nation has now been cut off from Jerusalem, So they need a new capital, and they need a new temple. And so they choose to make their capital Samaria, and they build their own temple there, and they worship the Lord there. And so throughout, if you're reading through like 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you really see a lot of the stories of the two kingdoms. And and a lot of the time, they're not getting along. Uh, Once in a while, they'll join forces to face an outside threat, but they're often at war with each other. And so there's different prophets that God raises up, and sometimes he raises a prophet for the northern kingdom of Israel. Sometimes he raises a prophet for the southern kingdom of Judah, but it goes along that way for a while. And so what begins to happen as the the two sides pull apart is that the southern kingdom begins to have a bit of a different religious direction than the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom much faster begins to move into idolatry and some different things. And so ultimately, God had warned about this in his word, that if Israel continued in idolatry, if they continued breaking his law, if they continued running after foreign gods, if they continued turning away from the Lord, that eventually they would lose the privilege of the promised land, right? Like any parent, there's privileges and blessings, and if you keep breaking the rules, there'll be discipline involved. And so eventually, the Assyrian Empire invades the northern kingdom. Kingdom. The Assyrians take over Israel and they send a bunch of the people out and they would, whenever these empires would invade, you didn't want to let the people remain in the land too much because they might gather together and rebel against you. So you would usually take the smartest and the best and you'd take them back home to your home capital so that they could benefit your empire. And then a lot of the strongest that were remaining, you would take them and you'd scatter them amongst the rest of your empire so that there could be no rising up against you and you would leave a few people in the land. And so when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom, they take over Samaria, the capital city falls, uh, and they, they make it part of Assyria. And as that happens, uh, Assyrians from the rest of the empire also are getting scattered around. And so a bunch of them come and live in Israel, and they begin to intermarry with the Jewish people who are living there in Israel. And with that, that is the birth of the Samaritans as a, a group of people. So they are partly Jewish. They've held to a lot of the Jewish faith and traditions, but they've intermarried with the Assyrians. And with that, um, they've 
kind of just become their own religion a little bit. And so they still believe in the Lord. They still worship Jehovah. Uh, they don't believe that the whole Old Testament is the word of God. They believe that the first five books called the Pentateuch is the word of God, but they don't believe in the Psalms. They don't believe in the prophets. And so with that, they kind of begin to diverge from, from the mainstream uh, Judaism. And so in the South, they remain more committed to the scriptures as we understand them. And then eventually the Southern kingdom would also get taken over and, and would fall into its own idolatry and sin, and they also would get scattered by the Babylonians a little bit later. And so as, as this has come back now to Jesus' time, by the time Jesus comes to the earth, um, Israel has settled back in the land again. Uh, the empires have let them come back home, but now the Romans have taken over the whole thing. And so there is still just one land of Israel, but there's still this Samaritan tension that's gone on that's really been around for about a thousand years since the Civil War first happened, that the northern part of the kingdom and the southern part just still don't kind of get along. Those tensions are there. And in the middle of the country, like right smack in the middle, is the land that they call Samaria. And that's where the Samaritans live. And so the Samaritans do not like the Jews. The Jews do not like the Samaritans. The problem is, is that in the southern part of the kingdom, which they call Judea, uh, that's where Jerusalem and everything is. In the northern part of the kingdom, which they call Galilee, the only way to get from one to the other is to go through Samaria. So you have to go through this land where if you're a Jewish person, nobody likes you. And it's not just about, hey, we have some, some racial tension here. It's not just about we have some religious disagreements here. There were times where it was very violent between the two groups. And so all Jewish teachers would teach their students, you do not associate with the Samaritans. All the Samaritan teachers would tell their students, you do not associate with the Jewish people. And so at times they would raid each other's towns. They would kill each other. Uh, there were times where the Jews invaded Samaria and were burning down their synagogues. And so as revenge, the Samaritans went into the holy temple in Jerusalem. And the law says you can't be around a dead body because that would defile you. And so they sprinkled bones all over the temple grounds so that the Jewish people couldn't get in uh, until that was cleaned up. And so there was all sorts of, again, political, racial, practical, uh, physical tension going on between these two groups. But again, there's no way to get through the land without tracking through it. But just knowing some of that story helps us understand this one, helps us understand parables like the Good Samaritan uh, to understand some of this backstory, that these were groups that hated each other. These were groups that wanted to kill each other. And, and it was rooted in all of this history and all of this tension that had gone on for about a thousand years at this point. And so Jesus is in the south. That's where the baptisms were happening, uh, down by the River Jordan. And he decides to head back up to Galilee, but he's got to go through Samaria. So while they're going through Samaria, they stop at this well. And, and that's where our woman makes an appearance in the story, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So he's all by himself. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. I've just given you some of the backstory as to why. So that's not something that was done. And so she is surprised by the question. And so not only is, uh, is she a Samaritan, but she's a Samaritan woman as well. And we see, obviously, later in the story, the disciples are quite shocked that he's having a private conversation with a woman in public. That's not something that is done. And so Jesus is the one who starts the conversation. The lady's just minding her own business. She's not doing anything wrong. She's going about her business. And so Jesus doesn't start with a, a theological question. He doesn't start with a debate. He doesn't start with a, hey, let's talk about your lifestyle. He starts with, can I have a drink? 
And I have learned in my years of ministry, some of us are really bad at starting a conversation. We just never learned how. Uh, my mom talks about when she was in high school, you would take classes on things like etiquette, and you were taught some of these things. And so we don't have to jump into the heavy stuff right away. We don't have to jump into deep things. It's just a simple conversation. He knows exactly where he wants the conversation to go, but he just starts with, hey, it's hot. It's the middle of the day. You're here with your water jugs and things. How about you get me a drink? And so as Jesus is engaging with this woman in this woman in this way, she obviously is confused, right? The disciples are going to be confused a little later. She's confused right now. She says, that's not something that would normally be done here. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. We don't talk to each other. And I'm a woman, and you're not a relative, so you really shouldn't be talking to me. So there's a little bit of scandal kind of going on in this conversation. And as we've seen the last number of weeks, Jesus actually didn't seem too concerned about scandalous moments like this if there was a soul who needed to hear what he had to say. He was okay with it. If anything, obviously he is initiating it and making it happen. And so he's unconcerned by the scandal of what's going on in this moment. And so he asks her for a drink. She pushes back. I don't understand why this is happening, why you would ask me for a drink. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So if you understood who I am, uh, you would not be pushing back in that way. You would be asking me for a drink. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Can't blame her. She doesn't understand where he's going with this. Jesus loves using metaphors and similes. uh, And a lot of times the people didn't quite track with him. He's going into this beautiful metaphorical explanation and the people are going, huh? It just doesn't make any sense. So you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Now, we don't really know what that means. There's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about a specific well that Jacob had. Uh, There's a tradition in the Samaritan branch of the faith that, yeah, Jacob had this well. The Samaritans draw their bloodline uh, directly to Joseph. They still do that today, that they are the descendants of Joseph, the son of Jacob, uh, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they, they still honor Jacob as one of their fathers as one of their patriarchs, as they do Joseph. So tradition was that this was Jacob's well. Uh, He had given it to the Samaritan people, and then he himself had partook of it. So Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And so when Jesus is talking about thirst, he has shifted gears, right? We are no longer talking about a glass of water at the well. Jesus is talking about a whole other thing. And when he's talking about there's a water that I can give you where you'll never thirst again, he's talking about it in the the grand, eternal, existential sense. That there is a, a way that you can know God. There is a way that you can be forgiven. There is a way you can be brought back into relationship with him. And it doesn't mean we literally never need a, a drink of physical water, obviously. It also doesn't mean we never literally get thirsty for more of the Lord. But there is a way to be right with God that you will never be dried out and alone in this life again. There's a way to know God that imminently, so much so that it will be like there's a spring of water inside you all the time. So if you can imagine the, you know, the viewpoint of, so you don't have to run to the well every day, you don't have to run to the faucet to get a glass of water, like that's not necessary because there's a well inside you. Jesus says that's what knowing the Lord is like. He's always there. There's a reservoir in there all the time that draws us to him and keeps us close to him. 
And so he's, again, Jesus is starting the metaphor. The lady's not quite tracking with him through no fault of her own. Uh, He talks about living water. And living water, uh, we use that as a term because we know what Jesus means. And we'll get to that in a second. But living water was a term that they would use to talk about just physical water. Because there were wells that had really good, healthy, life-giving water. And then there were wells that were stagnant or wells that had bacteria in them or wells that had disease. And so living water was a term that they would have used to describe just regular wells. That some of these wells have living water that give you life and sustain you. Some of these wells are, are dead. They have death water. They have water that is not good for you. And so she is, again, not tracking through no fault of her own, but she's, she's fixating more on the fact that, Jesus, you don't have a cup with you. Like, how are you going to get? I mean, there's living water in this well. There's good, healthy, clean water in this well, but you can't give me a drink. From that, there's nothing. There's no way that you can help me here. And then Jesus begins to shift the conversation to say, no, this is a different kind of water I'm talking about. And this is where there's actually going to be a well inside you that is always there, that is always refreshing, that is always available. So we get the metaphor landing actually a little bit later in John's gospel, a few chapters from now, John chapter 7, 37, 39. Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So same conversation he's having with the lady. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And so John clarifies exactly what Jesus is talking about when he's using the term living water. That the Holy Spirit will come, the Holy Spirit will make his home in every believer, and that he will always be there, a constantly refilling, a constantly refreshing well that will be in there all the time. And as it relates to sin, just because we're talking about Jesus and the sinners, as it relates to our sin, as it relates to our journey, as it relates to others when we see them in sin, our greatest, one of our greatest uh, tools, blessings, gifts that God has given us in terms of uh, resisting sin, turning away from sin, repenting of sin, is the Holy Spirit. He is this gift that God has given us, that right inside you right now is everything you need to resist sin forever. Right inside you right now is everything you need to be transformed away from sin forever. If you think about a time in your life when you were particularly close to the Holy Spirit, where you felt particularly a sense of God's presence, whether it was in a worship service or maybe it was at camp or a conference or a private time, but just think of a time when you felt particularly close to the Lord, where you went, Oh, okay, that's what the filling of the Spirit feels like. I feel close to him in a particularly powerful way right now. When you think about that feeling, when you remember those moments, for me, sin is almost unthinkable in that moment, right? Almost unthinkable in that moment because God is so real and so close and so much at work that the thought of going out and saying something awful or doing something awful, it just seems impossible. And the intensity of that feeling doesn't last every moment of every day. But the Spirit is the great gift of God who comes not just to convict us of our sin, but to actually transform us, to be filled with the Spirit. And so the call comes to us from Scripture. We are told more than once, including in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Like, be, let that well refill you again. So everyone who is saved has the Holy Spirit, because the Bible says we can't come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit, but we're not automatically filled with him all the time. That's something that we seek. 
That's something that we, we press into for. And so if it was just, hey, you have the spirit and that's it, we wouldn't be told, well, seek the filling at the same time. So the spirit is there, but we need to seek that filling and refilling and refilling and refilling. And as that happens, yes, we are convicted of our sins. Yes, the truth of God comes to us through his word. Yes, we are, are uh, made aware of his presence and that helps. But even more than that, we are transformed. We actually become different people as the Holy Spirit does his work in us. And so we are told, seek that filling. Pray for that filling. You've heard me say many times, wherever in your life you feel close to the Lord, where you feel that sense of his nearness and his filling, go to that place unapologetically and carve out that time to spend with him that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. As we get back to our story, verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she's still stuck on the physical water part of things. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And boom, right? The conversation has shifted now. Okay, we're not just talking nice metaphors anymore. This is very, very personal and very, very real, very, very fast. And so he says, go call your husband and come back. And that's probably a cultural thing as much as anything, is that he culturally really shouldn't be talking to a woman in public. And, and obviously he's not overly concerned about it. But his response is, all right, so let's get her husband here. Um, but he's also, I think, just tripping the conversation where it needs to go. I have no husband, she replied. Now he's a stranger, so it's not like she's going to open up totally with a stranger right away, but that's kind of a dodgy answer to that question, right? She's, she's dodging it without answering it. Um, so Jesus brings up where she has been. She's had five husbands. She's now living with a man who is not her husband. And so we don't know anything about the story of the five husbands. Don't you want to know? I'm so curious as to what has gone on. Uh, as we have said throughout the series, we want to be careful that we're only saying what the text is saying. And, and although we can speculate and fill in the gaps, uh, we don't want to, to make doctrine out of those moments. And so all we know about this woman is that she is, uh, has been married five times and now she's living with a man who is not her husband. And so living with a man who is not her husband is sin. So her sin has come up. Um, some have presumed a lot of sin in her past because of so many failed marriages, but that might not be fair. That would go beyond what the text says. We don't know if she's been through five divorces. We don't know if she has buried five husbands potentially. We don't know if it's some mix of both. Um, but this lady's been through some stuff right? She's, she's had a rough go. And so there is speculation. Perhaps she has been abandoned five times. Perhaps she has had affairs. Perhaps the husbands have had affairs. Perhaps they have died. We don't know any of that for sure. All we know is she has been married five times and now she's in another significant relationship, but she's not marrying this one. And based on her past, that is perhaps not shocking. Perhaps she is going, I've been burned by marriage before. I'm not going down that road again. Perhaps it's, you know what? I've buried five husbands. I can't bear to bury a sixth one. Perhaps the husband or the man in the story doesn't want to marry her because she has this history and, and we, we just don't know uh, any of that story but she's been through a lot of stuff and she's now living with a man who is not her husband. So when it comes to Christians, we, we have a tendency to fixate on sexual sin as worse than other sins. 
And to fixate it as worse than other sins is not fair, I think, or biblical. Um, but we get accused of that sometimes, of we're just kind of obsessed with sexual sins, and we tend to downplay the sins that um, are maybe more common, that more of us maybe commit or struggle with, and we tend to focus just on the sexual stuff. And so we want to make sure we're not doing that, and yet also uh, want to make sure that we are saying what the Bible does say about sexuality. And so as this woman has had this this difficult past and, and everything that has gone with it, which again, we're, we're filling in the gaps on a lot of stuff. Um, Jesus just brings up as a matter of fact, right? The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Uh, What you just said is quite true. And so he is pointing out her sin in this moment. To be sleeping with, living with someone who is not your husband goes beyond what God's word calls us to in our sexuality. So he doesn't say anything more than that as well, right? He doesn't say, here's all the scriptures that you're violating. He doesn't uh, put shame on her in that moment. He points out her sin, and that's actually all he has to say about it from there. He brings it up. He speaks the truth. Um, and, and even though he doesn't specifically say, hey, lady, you're sinning, uh, that is what he is doing here. And, and even at that time, this would have been a scandalous way to live. To be living together and not be married uh, would have been a big deal. And so she knows exactly what Jesus is doing. He is highlighting her sin. That is what one of the things that prophets do. And so when it comes to sexual sin... Our conviction of scripture is that sex is meant to be preserved in marriage. And that's the only expression of sex uh, that God's word approves of. And it actually goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, When God creates Adam and Eve, he creates man and woman. He says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's the the act of sex, that two become one. Um, I know it's uncomfortable when your pastor's talking to you about sex, all right? So we're going to power through this because I do think it's really important. And I think it's important that we understand the why of things. And so, again, I I have heard and and Christians get accused sometimes of uh, obsessing about this one area of sin. I want us to understand why God... God puts this commandment in place, why he puts his boundary in place, because if we don't understand the why, then very easily it just becomes a very kind of shame-based, shameful thing, and lots of Christians carry shame as it relates to their past, as it relates to sex. And so it's not about shame. When God puts boundary on this, it's not because there's anything wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with driving a car, but we have rules about how that should happen and at what age that should happen, and the rules are there for safety. That's the only reason those rules are there. So when God sets a boundary around sex, it's the same thing. He is putting that there for safety. And the heart of it is that in sex, as a husband and wife come together, they become one. The two become one flesh. That that is as intimate, as vulnerable, as close as you can possibly be to another human being, right? Two have become one in this action. No longer two individuals, but joining together, their bodies have become one. And because of the uh, vulnerability involved there, because of the intimacy involved there, because that is an emotionally and physically vulnerable place, God has put a boundary in place that says, I only want you to do that with your person, with your person that you've made the vow to the person you've made the commitment to. Because in the marriage covenant, in the marriage vow, we say to God, I am not leaving this person. I'm committed for life. And we know that not all marriages work out. But in God's ideal, the covenant is made where we say, I am committed to you, God, and I'm committed to my partner. I'm here for life. I'm not going anywhere. And then they make the same commitment back to you. Out of the safety of that God-ordained commitment, God says, now you are safe 
to be vulnerable, to be intimate. You are safe to be one with that person because it's not, well, I've gotten my needs met from you and now I'm taken off right, in a one-night stand, or or I'm going to be in a relationship with you, but we're not actually fully committing to each other, but, you know, if it works out, it works out, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, and and I might bail. It's like, no, that this this is such an intimate act that God says we're doing this in the safety of covenant, and the safety of that mutual commitment, that vow we've made to each other, that vow we've made to God, there we are safe now to express this. I can become one with you now because we've both committed we're not going anywhere. We're committed for life, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, we're sticking this out. And out of that safety, we make that commitment. And so scripture would talk about it later in 1 Corinthians 7, that in that marital relationship, as the husbands and wives uh, join together and become one, there's an ownership, a co-ownership that happens where the, the husband's body is not just his own anymore. It belongs to the wife. The wife's body is not her own anymore. It belongs to the husband. That is not there to say, hey, I own you. You do what I say. But it's there to express just the mutual oneness that has come. That I own my own body, obviously, and now also I own my wife. She owns her own body, but she also owns mine. There's a oneness to have become one now. And so if you ask, well, why can't I sleep with my girlfriend or why can't I sleep with my fiance? The simple answer is, is because you don't own that yet. You're taking ownership of something that doesn't belong to you. And as you make that covenant with God and each other, now you own that. Now it belongs to you. But God meant for that to be expressed with your person that you're committing to for life. We know it doesn't always work out that way. We know that sometimes we fall short. And so this lady, uh, you know, is now in this relationship. And, and many people have been in relationships like that. And so we would just say, if you are sleeping with someone outside of marriage, we would call you to stop and come back to do it God's way. And if you are married and sleeping with someone outside of the marriage, you need to tell your spouse and you need to stop that and come back to doing this God's way. And if you have this in your past and you have done this before um, and, and you've already turned away from it, then our role is to confess. And as we've looked at in this series, when we confess, if we're faithful to confess, he is faithful to forgive. And so it's not about shame, and it's not about guilt. Conviction of the Holy Spirit gives us a feeling of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But it's only with a sense of hope, right? The Holy Spirit just wants us to pick a better way. So I'm calling you, if you're in this, to turn away from that. Come back to God's way for this. Make right what you need to make right. And just trust and receive the gift of his grace as you do confess. And as you do repent, his mercy is there for you. So I don't want you to carry any shame from that or any uh, overwhelming sense of that. Just find God's way again and come back to his way. That is enough of your pastor talking to you about sex. Uh, thanks for bearing with me for those couple of minutes. So as this woman is, is being exposed, really, in this moment, right? Jesus is a prophet, and so the prophet is exposing uh, some of the sin that she has lived in. Um, again, he's not coming angry. He's not coming like he's pointing it out. This was sin. Um, and, and the funny thing about the story as well, is that we don't really know what happens next, right? Did she turn away from that sin? Did she marry the guy? Like, did, did, we don't know. We don't have any idea. But Jesus points out her sin. But see just the, do you see the gentleness of the shepherd in this moment? The gentleness of the shepherd, right? Not cracking her on the head and, and rebuking her harshly. There is sin here. He points it out. 
But again, you think of this woman and where she's been and whether she has been divorced five times, whether she's buried five husbands, whether it's a mix of both, whether she's been cheated on, whether she's done the cheating, we don't have any idea. But this woman has been through some stuff. If you can imagine the, the staggering amount of pain that she has been through in her life to the point where either by her choice or the man's choice, uh, they're not even getting married this time. Like that's not even something that's on the table and just the, the weight of that. Um, I mean, if someone in any context would would be sharing you know every sin in your past and every struggle and every pain like we would all have a lot we would all have something to say it might not be the same as hers obviously but we would all have things to share so this woman is been has been through a lot and and she's bearing the pain of that no doubt and and bearing the stigma of that bearing the shame of that to be uh, in a, a highly religious culture like the samaritans and the jews were and to be living with a man who was not your husband would have been condemned by everybody so she is an outcast no doubt in the the society that she's in she is being whispered about uh, the man she is with is being whispered about and and so the the amount of pain and shame that this woman is carrying jesus doesn't pile on any shame or, or any extra pain. He doesn't. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't guilt her. He doesn't say, here's where you've offended the Lord or, or broken God's word. He doesn't do any of that. He meets her right where she's at. The fact is, as a matter of fact, you are in sin. And he points that out and he brings that uh, out to the, to the surface. And then as they keep talking, verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So it's funny. She has been exposed and she does what we all do. She deflects, right? Let's start a religious debate, right? Let's get us off the conversation that's unpleasant and uncomfortable about me. And so she does that. She tries to trigger a religious debate. The Samaritans said, we worship at our area in Samaria. We worship on Mount Gerizim, and that's the holy mountain that you come to worship on. And the Jews said, no, we worship in Jerusalem, and we worship on the mountain there, and we have the temple there. And so we are, are focused on that. And so she deflects away from her own sin. I think we all probably do that if we're honest. We don't like to think about it. It's uncomfortable. And so Jesus will meet her there as well. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And so a day is coming when worship is not going to be about a physical location, Jesus says, right? And, and Jesus makes very clear, Samaritans, you kind of went your own way in the faith, but the Jewish people are the ones who remained faithful to God. And so we are the ones who are the carriers of the scriptures. We're the ones who are the carriers of the covenant. We are the ones ultimately who are the carriers of the Messiah who's about to come to the world. We are the ones who have walked with God. We know him in a way that you don't. So he's clear that she's in some theological error in how she's thinking things through here. But he says ultimately none of that is going to matter because when the Holy Spirit comes, you can worship God literally anywhere. When we come together on a Sunday morning, it's not powerful because we're in this particular room in this particular place. Right? If we were outside in the back, if we were down at the beach, if we were meeting in someone's yard, it would be just as powerful because the power of what happens when we worship together is that we come together. 
And we can do that anywhere. And, and we saw during, we can do that online, right? I do think we miss something when we only do it online, but we can engage in lots of different ways because the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He's not bound to one point of geography. And so Jesus says, it's not going to be about your mountain. It's not going to be about our mountain. The Father is looking for worshipers in the Spirit and in truth. So those who are filled with the Spirit and those who know the truth, right? He says, Samaritans, you don't know the truth as well as the Jewish people do. And so that's, that's pointing to this idea that you can't worship someone you don't know, right? If someone came along with a new religion and said, hey, come worship Joe, my God, you'd say, well, I don't know Joe. How, can I, how could you worship Joe, right? You can't worship what you don't know. And so that's one of the reasons why we have teaching and one of the reasons why we share because we're wanting to grow in our knowledge of the truth. Uh, Peter writes to us and says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in your knowledge about him and grow in his grace. And as you do that, we mature. And so we want to be growing in our truth so we can worship him more purely. We want to be filled with the spirit as that draws us closer to him. The woman says, verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So Jesus is revealing himself to them long before uh, Peter's question, right? And, and Peter, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, Jesus is revealing himself to a Samaritan, revealing himself to a Samaritan woman. One of the very first people that Jesus reveals himself to is this woman who on paper, he shouldn't be talking to. These Samaritans who have this bad theology and the Jews are the enemies of, he shouldn't be talking to her because she's a Samaritan. He shouldn't be talking to her because she's a woman. He shouldn't be talking to her because she is a sinner and she's in a relationship that she shouldn't be in. And Jesus breaks all those rules. He doesn't care because there's somebody who needs him in this moment. There's someone who needs to experience who Jesus is. And so he reveals himself to her, although she is not Jewish, although she is not a man, although she is in her sin. Um, and again, we don't know what happens from there, whether she repents or not. And so the conversation carries on. We're going to skip some parts here. Verse 28, leaving her water jar, she's forgotten completely the reason why she came to the well in the first place. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's a bit of an exaggeration, obviously, but he certainly told her something very sensitive, even though he's never met her before. So come see this man. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And again, just such an interesting part of the story that in John's gospel, uh, you could argue that the first evangelist for Jesus Christ is John the Baptist, right? John went out first and began to say, the Messiah is coming. The next evangelist is a Samaritan woman in Samaria, right? Not going to the Jewish people, not like coming to the people who were the enemies of the Jewish people. And again, not a man and not a man who's living an upright life in the way that the Jewish people would have expected. This Samaritan woman caught in her sin, she's the first one to go out and say, hey, I think the Messiah is here. I think he's arrived. I think he has come too. It's the, the most unlikely evangelist, I think, in all of the Gospels. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Just sidebar, notice how powerful a testimony is, how powerful your testimony is. They believe in Jesus because of her testimony. They haven't even met him yet. They haven't heard him speak themselves yet. But because of her testimony, people are starting to put their faith in Christ. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And so as... 
again, everything about this story is backwards and upside down, right? We're, we're not thrown by it because we're familiar with it. But the fact that it's with Samaritans, the enemy of God's people, the Samaritans with all of their bad theology, the Samaritans who had intermarried with the foreigners and had wandered away from the Lord, the fact that it's a woman and not a man, and he's not even supposed to be talking to this woman, the fact that it is a woman who is in sin in a way that no culture was okay with in the world at that time, and she's living in that sin, and all of that is going on. And Jesus says, this is the one who's going to start sharing the story that the Messiah has arrived in Samaria. She's going to be the one to go out and start telling the story. And then they say, hey, Jesus, can you hang out with us? He says, sure. And he stays with the enemies for two days. The people he is not supposed to be hanging out with, he stays with them for two days. Jesus would teach in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. There's a decent chance, and he's God, so he knows better. But there's a decent chance if he and the disciples are hanging out in Samaria, they might die. Like, they, the, the crowds might turn on them. That's not a safe place for them to be. The goal, if you were a Jewish person, was power through Samaria as quickly as you can. Just, just get through it as quickly as you can. And, and so he's hanging out with the enemy. And he's teaching the enemy. And the enemy is putting their faith in Christ. They are believing that he is the Messiah. The enemy is coming to Jesus. And so, uh, again, just that challenge to us of how are we loving our enemies? How are we loving the groups in our lives that maybe the, the culture or the world says we're not supposed to like or we're not supposed to hang out with or, or the, the groups that Christians don't like and don't want to hang out with? Where are we doing what Jesus did? Where are we connecting? Where are we spending that time? Because in this story, this woman would have probably expected to come to the well and nobody's going to talk to me, right? They, they don't like the way I'm living my life. They don't like my history. No one's going to treat me with decency at this well. And there's a man who came there that she was not expecting. And although he does call her sin, sin, he meets her with grace and compassion at the same time. And he shows who he is to her. And then she goes out and begins to spread the word that the Messiah has arrived here in Samaria, in Samaria. So this little revival, this little mini revival breaks out in Samaria before anywhere else in Israel. Uh, the first, these first believers in the kingdom outside of the, the initial circle that Jesus calls together. Um, man, what if she had never shared her story? Right? What if she said, oh, I don't want to be offensive. I don't know if people are ready. Uh, I just don't want to step on any toes. And then, of course, the challenge for us is who needs to hear our story? Who needs to hear our testimony? Because of her testimony, people started believing in Jesus. Who needs to hear your testimony? Come on up, worship team. Almost done, I promise. Here at Meadowbrook, we're helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Again, focusing on that primarily in three ways, upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. Upwardly in our walk with him, inwardly as he does his work in us, and outwardly as we live it out and as we engage with other people. And so, um, so what struck me as I read it this week in terms of upwardly is that Jesus was just kind of hanging out with her. And then just kind of hung out with the, with the Samaritans after that. But he just kind of, he made time and space and he hung out with her. And out of that, this incredible conversation unfolds. Out of that, everything is, is laid out for the whole rest of the story. So upwardly, in terms of your next steps there, where are you just hanging out with Jesus? Where are you spending that time? Where are you giving him room through his word and by his spirit to speak into your life, to speak his truth 
to you? Where is that time a priority? Um, where are we making room for that in our lives? Inwardly, again, and I'll be challenging you about this throughout the series of just where are there areas of our life that we know about, that we are out of step with what God has called us to do? Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to confess our sin to somebody? Where do we need to turn away? And again, once the conviction of the Spirit has come, shame is not from God, okay? He's not coming to bring shame. He is coming to correct. And so we are not carrying any shame with us as we get convicted of our sin. We're saying, oh, okay, I'm off track. I am now following. I'm shifting. I'm changing direction. I'm going to pursue him in his way. So what's the next step that needs to happen there? Outwardly, where do you need to share your story with somebody? Where is there a person in your life who maybe themselves are cast out or, or alone? Maybe there's someone in sin, and maybe there's someone who's part of a group that... that Christians maybe don't normally associate with. Again, Jesus wasn't worried about any of that stuff because he knew there was somebody who needed to meet him. And so I'm not going to tell you specifically what to do, but uh, just to challenge you in those areas, take that to the Lord. Lord, what are my next steps? Upwardly, what are my next steps inwardly? What are my next steps outwardly as we live this out in the way you've called us to live? Would you stand to your feet with me, please? We will worship and we will close in prayer together.